You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey folks, before we get started here, I have a brand new book coming out tomorrow, February 7th. It's called Curveball, When Your Faith Takes Turns You Didn't See Coming. I'm very excited about it. It's the most personal book that I've written, and it's about how my theology changed because of certain experiences that I've had. Knowing your story, I'm excited for people to hear a little bit more about this move that I think we, this journey we've both been on to how do we talk about God and engage with these ideas in a more personal way outside of the structure of maybe the way we've always been taught to interpret right. certain experiences and life and how life will throw us curveballs, and yet we can still engage in this life of faith. And mm-hmm. I think that's where a lot of people are. I think where everybody is at some level or not, our experiences do affect how we think about the nature of God, or if you're Christian, you know, Jesus and Christianity and the Bible and all that. And so this book is about me reflecting on those things, some of which are personal, but some things are like scientific, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just all those things have made me think differently about God. And I'm very conscious about that transition, let's call it, in in this book. And so I'm hoping that I'm not telling other people what to believe, you know, you don't have to have these experiences. Given the the way you're approaching things, that would be to undermine the point, which is your experiences affect how you see the world. Right. Yeah. And other people can relate in the fact that I think they also have, they think differently about God today than they did 10 years ago, 10 years ago, because stuff happened. Right. Right. And that's the thing. Stuff happens all the time. And how can it not affect how we think about God? Absolutely. That's my point. You can buy Curveball wherever you like to get your books. If you like to find local bookstores to support, you can go to IndieBound.org. I often use Bookshop.org as well. But wherever you buy books, the the key is just just buy the book. Or several copies. That's several copies. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. You might want to read it more than once. Yeah. I think Valentine's Day is coming up. Is it? Yeah. So Do people give books on Valentine's Day? They should. They should. Yeah. Absolutely. Dagnabbit. Yeah. All right. So pick it up. Curveball. And we're really excited because this year we're putting on a class every single month. Oh my goodness gracious. And our February class is called Putting the Pieces Together After Deconstruction. And it's led by yours truly, by which I mean Jared and myself. That's right. Yours truly's. I don't know how you put it. Yours truly's. I know we shouldn't even. Well, the class is live for one night only, and it's going to be on February 20th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern time. And folks as we always do, as is our habit, the class is pay what you can until the 20th, and then it'll be available for download for $25. Alternatively, you can become a member of the Society of Normal People for $12 a month. You'll get access to all of our classes, past, present, future, and you'll get an exclusive members-only Q&A session that we're adding to each class as well. So if you're stoked about this, and of course you are, for more information and to enroll in the class, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash deconstruction. See you there, folks. Welcome, everyone, to the inaugural episode of the seventh season of The Bible for Normal People. Um, Today, we are talking about pushing back against biblical womanhood with none other than Beth Allison Barr. Yeah, and Beth, of course, she's very well known. She teaches European history and all sorts of things like that. She's also got a best-selling book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, which is probably how you heard of her. And 
it was just so much fun to talk with her and just learning a lot over this episode. So we really hope you enjoy it. Biblical womanhood is rooted in culture, not actually in the Bible. And so I think this is part of this embattled identity that we are protecting the Bible and protecting the right interpretation of the Bible without realizing that that right interpretation is grounded in a cultural interpretation. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for jumping on the podcast with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Where did this view of womanhood come from and why did it develop? We have the same Bible, and yet it developed within evangelicalism in a very different way than it did for mainline Protestants and progressive denominations. So what were those influences that changed from one to the other? How do we get to a different result? So I might push back a little bit on difference between mainline and evangelicalism, because even though mainlines have been ordaining women for quite some time, if you actually look at the numbers of how many women are in the pastorate or are, you know, what you would call senior pastors, whatever, they're still really small. Right. Um, and so it's really, it's fascinating how even within structures that support women in ministry, women are not being supported in a way that helps promote them through. So we have a leaky pipeline, even in mainline. Yes, yeah, so maybe true in theory, but not true in practice. Right. So I think in some way, um, so there are significant differences between evangelicalism and mainline. But at the same time, the reality for both is we see women not moving through to these um, positions of authority. Could we talk about the differences that you just mentioned uh, between evangelical and mainline uh, churches? Yeah, certainly. Um, so the Mainline churches that I'm most familiar with, of course, are American Baptists um, with the Baptist world. And we know that American Baptists have been ordaining women since the late 19th century. In fact, 
almost all, we know that, you know, Methodists um, also claim that women began to be ordained in the 19th century. Um, so, and in fact, we see throughout, you know, Catherine Breckis has done this wonderful study where she's counted women in North America in the 18th and the 19th century, and she's counted more than 100 of mm. these women who are preachers and ordained. Um, so we know that in the 19th century, we have this significant tradition of women preaching. And this tradition seems to continue more in mainline churches than it does in evangelicalism. In evangelicalism, it goes backwards, whereas in mainline churches, it goes, it's sort of a stuttered going forward. We see women being ordained in the 19th century, and then that kind of, there's that goes away for a little bit in the early 20th century, and then we see it pick back up again in the post-war era, especially, and we see women being ordained and recognized at full equality. I think theologically, one of the main differences is that mainline churches emphasize that women and men are equally made in the image of God. And this is consistent if you look through, you know, almost all of their statements when they talk about why they ordain women. They often start with that, and they start with Galatians as well, with emphasizing that Paul said that there is no male or female, there is no slave or free. And so those we see prominently focused in traditions that ordain women. And in evangelical traditions, what we see emphasized is on the order of the household and the order of the church, this very much this emphasis on order and that God is a God of order. That's something that you hear frequently and that the order. So instead of maybe focusing on, you know, we are all one in Christ Jesus, as we find in Galatians, they focus on other passages that emphasize hierarchy, um, such as what they pull from the household codes from, you know, Ephesians 5, of course, is mm-hmm. the, it's the one we often think about. Um, so what I think one of the main differences is we see a different focus on biblical texts. Mainline churches focus on ones that that demonstrate the equality of men and women and that we are that we are all called and in the same ministry and evangelical churches focus more on passages that emphasize the differences um, or emphasize what they perceive to be a difference between women and men, and that God has ordained an order for the house, for the church, and for broader society. So That's interesting. I don't know if I've thought through it quite that way. long enough in the mm-hmm. way that you've just said it, which is behind the differences, because certainly, you know, we hear about the differences, but Behind that, I hear you saying there's a structure or a preference, a tendency toward a God of order, that there is a a certain structure to it. And so that that is the impetus that manifests in these uh, differences between men and women. And what biblical womanhood really comes from is this desire to see structure and order. And the reason that's so interesting to me is because as of late, I've been hearing about the Republican Party being a party of law and order. And so there's this connection of a desire to see order. And so the political and religious affiliations between, you know, conservative Republicans and evangelicals makes sense if that's the underlying structure. Is that what you've seen as well? Well, you know, I, I would I don't know if it's the underlying structure, but I would say it's a underlying difference. This emphasis on that God has created a, a particular order 
And that if you step outside of that order, then that is what leads to the fall of nations. That's what leads to the fall of your household, et cetera. There are certainly, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, this is something that Kristen Dumay wrote in Jesus and John Wayne about how this fringe ideas that we thought were fringe, like Bill Gothard. And one of the things that the Bill Gothard movement emphasized was on how God would bless the homes and the nations, you know, et cetera, that stayed within the design. And the design was male headship and female submission. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if you went outside of those bounds, then that would lead to chaos in your family. And those really became mainstream ideas. Um, you know, I think focus on the family was a big part of bringing those ideas more mainstream. I think uh, the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, there was a lot of emphasis on or use of these Gothard ideas. So I think that I think there is, I think this emphasis on order and that there is a right order for things to be done. And in fact, I mean, Al Mohler just very recently said this. He said that, you know, what biblical womanhood is, is a rightful ordering of church and home. And mm-hmm. I've quoted him on that more than once, which is why I remember it. I'll bet you have. <laughs> yeah. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for an Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin-D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin-D. This double-action combination of prescriptive-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. 
Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Well, let me ask here, and I hope this is, I want to go a little bit behind what you're observing here. Yeah. Because I want to try to understand this. It's one thing to say that there are differences in what is emphasized in the Bible, mm-hmm. whether it's image of God or hierarchy, order, that kind of stuff. But behind that, there's still something going on, I think, that drives people to highlight certain passages over others. So I don't know, can you help us like maybe even what, how is this sausage made? What's even behind that, if anything? Well, uh, of course, the the main thesis of the making of biblical womanhood is that biblical womanhood is rooted in culture, not actually in the Bible. And so I would say a big driving factor is our culture that it stems, if you think about Southern white culture, which is in some ways how women are regarded in Southern white culture is pretty much the same as what has become known as biblical womanhood. And this is something that we can trace back, you know, very clearly to the 19th century, um, these markers of piety, purity, submission, and domesticity, um, which is what, you know, this this cult of white Southern womanhood was supposed to be, and this has become what biblical womanhood is. So I think a lot of, I mean, it really is rooted in this white Southern culture. Um, you could think about post-Civil War, where the emancipation of the slaves, and there's a great concern for order. And sort of, you know, I have a historian friend who always says when they couldn't oppress Black people, they oppressed women. <laughs> and it's not quite as simple as that. But we do see this, this hierarchy being more strictly established in the post-Civil War era. And when we see challenges to this white Southern culture is when we often see these more restrictive pushbacks within the church. So I'll give you two examples. Um, first one, suffrage. And in the late 19th century, we see the emergence of suffrage. And uh, Beverly Gaventa, who I just love Beverly Gaventa. And one thing that I heard her say once that has always stuck with me was that she suspects that, you know, she said, somebody needs to do the work. And I've done a little bit of the work and she seems to be right. We need to do more. But it seems to be that the emphasis on using passages in the New Testament that um, seem to suggest the submission of women in male headship these texts of terror, as we call them, Phyllis Tribble, uh, that they begin to be focused on significantly when women begin to push for the right to vote. And that does seem to be a pretty clear correlation. This also correlates with Junia. Junia, of course, in Romans 16, 7, who's identified as an apostle. And we begin to see her being identified instead of as female as Mel. And this does seem to correspond in biblical translations with, you know, around the suffrage movement. And so there seems to be this clear, like going back to the Bible, why can't women have the vote? Because women are told by God 
that they're supposed to be under male authority. So we see, you know, so that's one example. And a second example that we see similar is in the post-World War II era, and again, in the U.S., where the, there is a concerted nationwide effort to get women out of jobs that men could have. And this is when we begin to see this, um, this uptick in emphasis on women's places in the home. Women's place is, you know, the domestic sphere. Men are to be out in public. And this is tied to how God created men and women. And so we see, you know, the, when we see women moving towards more equality is often when we see these strong sort of pushbacks to right society and put them back in the home. Well, it's so ironic to hear you talk about this because, you know, I grew up in a tradition, you know, Southern Baptist evangelical, uh, where I was warned about culture and how culture will actually take <laughs> us off the path. Um, and so to hear, you know, the Southern well, the white, wrong kind of culture. Well, that's, that's the, yeah, there was no acknowledgement though, that it was culture. It was just what the Bible said. And culture was this accidental thing that will take you off the path. But to hear, you know, this Southern white cultural influence on it, as well as these you know, historical moments of suffrage and oh, we sort of let the cat out of the bag. Women are working, but now they're taking men's jobs. Um, how, how do you assess then the relationship between the Bible and the even, you, you know, I hear you saying is it's not so much the Bible, it's culture, but does the Bible promote the kind of womanhood we see even in, in, in evangelicalism or, or not? Or is it ambiguous? How do we assess that? So I would say the Bible used by most evangelicals does promote it because most evangelicals are using English Bible translations. And many of those English Bible translations that they are using are ones that tend to obscure women within the text. And of course, prominent example of this is the English Standard Version, the ESV. Take, for example, in Timothy, where it talks about the qualifications to be you know, various elder in the church that has all, you know, it's translated in the ESV as having all male pronouns. And yet we know that that's not an accurate reflection. It's more complicated than that. Um, so I say, I would say that most white evangelicals in these conservative traditions that support male headship and female submission also use corresponding biblical translations that also seem to support that. So I would argue that part of it is, um, is the translation history. And a lack of knowledge about how much translations are influenced by the culture of the translators. Um, you know, there's a lot of fear about that. People are afraid that if they admit that there is influence on the translation of the Bible, then that somehow invalidates Christianity. And so, and, and I think that fear is also cultural that evangelical culture in some ways has always been defined by who they are against rather than, you know, who they are for. We're, we're keeping the bad guys out. We're protecting mm -hmm. the family, protecting the children. And so I think this is part of this embattled identity that we are protecting the Bible and protecting the right interpretation of the Bible without realizing that that right interpretation is grounded in a cultural interpretation, yeah. um, and they're afraid to see that. And we're very much, of course, in that mess 
right now. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no question about that. Uh, I mean, just a very a side note, you mentioned the ESV. Mark Strauss, who is a New Testament scholar, he wrote an article years ago when the ESV came out, something like, um, why the English Standard Version should not be the standard English version. Uh-huh. <laughs> Clever time. Anyway, but it's just... Yeah, I think uh, you know people recognize the problems with this translation, and maybe it's it's blind spots. But it's everywhere, though. Everywhere. I was horrified. I was in the UK for the first time since COVID last April, and one of my favorite churches in London. That's it's an old medieval church, and it's now a um, non-denominational evangelical church. And I went in this time, and every chair in there was had an ESV sitting in it. And yeah. I just was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask then, you know, we've jumped from the the Bible to kind of modern day, but can you say maybe just briefly, what's the historical evolution of this? You know, it's there were these moments within suffrage post-World War II where we're emphasizing things, but what, you know, were there other kind of What's the what's the evidence for women biblical womanhood or women's involvement in in church things before that? Well, and this might also tie into your question about you know does the Bible support this? Um, the Bible is patriarchal. It was written in a patriarchal culture. It reflects patriarchal norms. And so when we think about the beginning of what we would call biblical womanhood today, and I would I would define that the way it is defined, which is that male men are called to be leaders and women are called to submit to male leadership. So this is grounded in this broader patriarchy that we do see in biblical text. Um, and you know, I mean, it's impossible to read the Bible without coming away with how women are marginalized, the difficult situations that women find themselves in, et cetera. So I think on the one hand, we have to recognize that's part of it is the patriarchal world in which the Bible was written, both, you know, all of it was written in a patriarchal world. So that's a big piece of it. But if we think historically, a turning point for what we would consider to be modern biblical womanhood today is the Reformation era. And this is something that, you know, I always say I have to be really careful on because I have a lot of Reformation friends. Um, The 16th Century Conference is one of the ones that I go to. And so I always have to be very careful about this. I don't want to blame it on Reformation theology, so to speak. Um, but But you can hear if you want to. Go ahead. I can play. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's how Reformation theology was then translated within a world that was already beginning to enforce more laws. Actually, it goes back to this law and order sort of thing, this ordering of society, where we see laws are becoming increasingly instruct, um, hindering women's ability to inherit property and constricting what women can do. And we also see this is when we see Reformation theology becoming entrenched and with this emphasis on the godly family, you know, this holy household, as Lyndall Roper calls it, with the emphasis on to be a godly woman is to be a godly wife at the same time that the laws of Western of the Western world were becoming increasingly restrictive about wives. Um, so if a godly woman is to be a wife, then in the early modern world, a godly woman was to be under the legal authority of a man. 
Um, and so these two things became, um, they became a part of the Christian culture, this emphasis on the wife and that this was a godly woman and that her place was to be in the home and under male authority. Mm. So uh, that would be a big turning point would be the Reformation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Well, you know, just maybe a subtext here I want to, I want to get at. Um, you seem to like to speak your mind, don't you, Beth? And you get a lot of pushback from this. And, you know, social media is our reality, and it's easy to say, oh, I don't like social media, this and that. Right, yeah. But I think we... Um, it's also a window onto certain things. And I know that you've had uh, a lot of difficulty with, with fielding that. And can you just maybe a couple things, just maybe describe a little bit of that, your own experience and how, what you hope to get out of that, right? Because there's a lot of polarization going on and people committed to polarization. Right. And how, how can you, like, how do you navigate that? Because I think that's a reality. A lot of people who don't write big books like yours, they still deal with that, right? And so just give us your experience and how that might help people navigate this reality. Yeah. So, you know, social media is um, is really a, both a blessing and a curse, just to use 
a phrase we often do. And it has given voice to so many people who otherwise would not be heard. And I think that is so important and so significant that it's, um, you know, it's brought up uh, the scholarship of people of color in a way that they, you know, haven't been brought out into spaces where people like me suddenly are reading and realizing what we have been missing. Um, they also give voice, you know, to to women who are able to speak out directly against men um, who often may hold, you know, hold the authority. And yet women's voices, you know, I, a good example of this is with Dane Ortlund just came out in Christianity Today about, um, you know, a problem that happened in his church and the woman who claimed that she had been retaliated and fired was able to speak out and to bring her case forward and begin to get some justice for that. And so it's given, and, and survivors, we can think about the Southern Baptist Convention, we can think about all yeah. the survivors. You know, I mean, in fact, a lot of this played out on social media. Uh, Megan Lively, whose story helped lead to the firing of Paige Patterson from Southwestern, that actually did play out on social media, where she identified who she was on social media. So I think social media is really, is really helpful. It's leveling the playing field in some sense because it is indeed because the the powerful people can't control it. Right. Right. So that's what's happening. Okay. Yeah, and that causes a great deal of concern. Doesn't it though? Yeah. You can't control their voices, and you don't know what they're going to say. And um, and there's also a lot of you know anxiety about social media. Like, who do we listen to? How do I know this is a person I should listen to? How do I know that? Um, you know, why do you say not to listen to this person? There, you know. I, so I think it's this question of authority. Um, which is interesting because that also stems back to thinking about Reformation theology. Where does biblical authority lie? And so we see, you know, on social media, it's almost a, you know, it's almost a free for all in some sense. Um, there's not clear rules. And so that also, that opens the door to this toxic culture and this lack of civil dialogue, civil discourse. And, you know, it also leads to powerful people being able to lash out against um, people that they disagree with who don't have very many followers and bury them. Uh, I think that, you know, something this this bullying that happens on Twitter is is very real. Uh, so I think, you know, it, it's a hard space to navigate. It's something I was not prepared for. There have been moments that I'm not sure if it's worth it or not to stay out there. But yet what makes it worth it is that your voice can be heard by people who need to hear your voice. And so that's something I think, you know, I see tweets from people who say they feel like they're shouting into the darkness, um, that nobody's listening to them. And actually, chances are much more likely that somebody is listening to them. And so I think that, you know, this, this, the possibility of connection and of hearing other people is so much greater in the space of social media than it is in sort of just our, uh, regular daily interactions where um, where our access to this type of information is much more limited and we might be much more tempted to stay within our own spheres that we know. So our own little echo chambers. So, I, you know, it's it's a hard place, but it's also a place that has just transformed so much. Well, and you've been, again, we, we have the luxury of getting to talk to you now a couple of years after, actually, I, I get, I lose track of 
COVID times. But the you know your book's been out for a while, and you know we get to kind of reflect on your experiences online. Is there anything you said it's you know it's challenging and it's very difficult? But have there been lessons learned? Like you said, there probably are people feeling unheard and wanting to talk about these things and talk about their experiences and do it in a way though that maybe can avoid some of the the pain that you've gone through. Are there is there any you know lessons learned that you can share? So I think a good lesson, and this is one that I often tell my graduate students, is that public social media means it's public. And so remembering that anything you say can be heard by somebody and picked up and used by somebody. So it doesn't, you know, that's not to scare people from saying things. It's just remembering that somebody is, the chances are somebody's going to see it. And so that can lead to being more thoughtful about what you say. I think one of the lessons very early on that I learned um, was that it's very important to admit when you're wrong on Twitter. Things happen so fast. And in some ways, you know, it's like a conversation. And so sometimes you say things in conversations that may not be exactly accurate, or you got some fact confused or something like that. And uh, Twitter actually is a conversation where you can go back and correct that. And I think it's really important that we correct when we're, when we either misjudge somebody on Twitter or we make mm-hmm. a statement that ends up not being absolutely correct about something. And I think that can provide, that provides a really good model, uh, for others to see people admitting that they're wrong. I think it also, and it also, if you, get a reputation for doing that, then when people, you know, nitpick your ideas. I mean, I think about, you know, I've been teaching at the college level since um, since the late 90s uh, in grad school. And I think if somebody paid attention to every single word I said <laughs> <laughs> over that time, I'd be in a yes. lot of trouble probably because, you know, and so Twitter pays attention to every word that you say. And so if you develop, uh, if you're always defending yourself and saying, oh, I was always right about this all the time, you know, first of all, that's not true. And secondly, it's going, you know, it leads to that polarization and people uh, not not listening, you know, only people who already agree with you are going to listen to you. So if you want people who don't agree with you to listen to you, then having that posture of, um, yeah, you know, sometimes I am wrong. If I'm wrong, I'm going to tell you I'm wrong. And then we can keep this conversation going forward. And so if you want more people to hear you who may not agree with you, that's a really good posture to take. And I've learned that because, you know, I tell people my audience isn't the people who agree with me. I'm not preaching to the choir. I'm trying to get people who are living in complementarian spaces, and complementarianism is the most recent iteration of um, male headship, female submission. And so I'm trying to get people in those spaces to hear me. And so it doesn't do me any good to alienate them. With that, it's a great segue because I wanted, as we come to the end of our time, I wanted to go back to the book and ask as as an academic, what was the purpose for which you wrote the book? Did it accomplish that? Did it did it surprise you in some ways? Like what was the yeah, what intention were you thinking? versus the <laughs> the impact? So you know, I I didn't intend to write this book. I really never did. Um, this book, I was approached to write this book based on some things, public media things I've been doing. I've since also learned that Kristen Dumay pointed some people my way based upon some talks that she'd heard me give. And so 
when I was asked to write the book, it was this moment where I was distanced enough from what had happened to us, from my husband being fired, that I was, I felt I could talk about it reasonably. I also had a better sense of what had happened. And it was also when the Church Too, Me Too, and, you know, the stuff with Paige Patterson, the SBC was, you know, be, the Southern Baptist Convention was beginning to have, you know, all of the sex scandal stuff was just beginning to start coming out. And I realized, I was like, you know what? I might be able to help in this situation um, because I can pull some pieces together that aren't being pulled together and maybe get people to realize that there is a different way to be a faithful Christian and to think about women's roles in the church and in broader society and to maybe, you know, help speak into this culture that had become so dangerous and toxic for so many women and even men as well. So that's really, you know, I've, I've said before, it took me a while to agree to write it. I was very hesitant. I was afraid to write it. Mm. I'm a pretty introverted person. I've become more introverted through this process. <laughs> you know, I like keep my eyes down when I'm out in public so I don't make <laughs> eye contact with people. Um, and that's not, you know, it's it's interesting the impact that it's had on me. But yet at the same time, knowing what I know now, I would have made the decision to write it because it has been incredible watching it change people's lives. And that's just amazing to be, to write something that actually is helping women. Like I'm going to an ordination on Sunday from a woman who read my book and now is being ordained. That is just incredible to be a part of that. So I'm very thankful that I had the chance to write it, but it is, I had no idea what was going to happen. Um, and it has not been a fun ride. Yeah. No. Well, can we just, uh, you know, as we come to our conclusion, that last point that you just made, I was at a conference about a month ago and uh, part of a panel. And afterwards, I spoke with a woman who's a scholar. She, her field is more biblical studies, but she's writing a book. She's begun sort of pushing it on social media. And she said to me, I am getting some of the most vile things ever said to me. And even a death threat. And it's one thing, I mean, I really applaud you. And I think, you know, we do this too at the Bible for Normal People. We're willing to put up with things, with getting things out there for people who benefit from it. And there is always the block button. You know, you don't have to listen to people's crap. You just move on. But what about those people that are not just disagreeing with you strongly, but are... They want a pound of flesh. H how do you handle that? Yeah. So I used to not block very many people because I had sort of this thing that if I wanted people to hear me who don't agree with me, I shouldn't block them. Yeah. You're naive. Go ahead. Anyway. <laughs> I was naive and stupid. Yes. And then reality hit me and I was like, they're not listening to me. All they're trying to do is keep other people from listening to me. So I block them. <laughs> I I have no, you know, I, uh, I mean, I block pretty fast now. Well, I think Brene Brown said something, I mean, I, I picked up years ago or something like they haven't earned the right to sit at the table. Right. Something like that. She said, yeah, that was a really good insight. That is exactly right. You know, they haven't, they haven't earned that right. And they're not interested in listening. 
you know, I think I've also done this with some of the reviews that have come out from people who their main goal behind the reviews is to keep other people from reading. And uh, I had to make a decision early on. Was I going to respond to all these things or was I not? And so it, you know, I, I decided pretty early on that some of there's just no point in responding to to some of these uh, very bad faith right. responses, you know. I mean, people see through it anyway. Yeah. So you know, um, so you you have to choose who to engage with um, and who where is going to be the biggest bang for your buck. And I mean that mm. not in a monetary sense, but no. where can you be heard? And right. so, yeah. Well, thank you so much for the work that you have done and, and continue to do to get that message out to get just like you said, those the impact that your book has had and also understanding the cost that it's come at to you. And so just again, like Pete said, to applaud you for that. Um, thank you for bringing it mm-hmm. out into the world. And thanks for jumping on the podcast with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to the BibleForNormalPeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. You've just made it through another episode of The Bible for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, Faith for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Natalie Wyant, Stephen Henning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Schaub. Uh, we thought we could, Jared thought we could start with the question, why do you hate men? Oh my gosh. I think that's a great question to start with. I've gotten <laughs> lots of those accusations lately. The notes say, Jared, to give a sincere endorsement with some sass. Yeah. You need help with the sass part? Oh, yeah, the sass part. That's yeah. what I have a hard time with. Not not the sincere endorsement. I, I, could, I, could, I think you need help with all this thing.